feel free to stand with me as we read our scripture this morning. We've got Psalm 34 of David when he pretended to be insane before Ambalek, who drove him away and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants, and no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Let me start by thanking the praise team for your music. I think those songs would have been perfect for Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? I do apologize. I changed up the, the passage. So if you heard a theme there that's not in Psalm 34, that's my fault. But good morning. It, uh, it is, we are in the Psalms still. We're in Psalm 34, and Psalm 34 begins with a salvo of praise. It's as if the psalmist can't contain himself. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. And after he praises the Lord in this way, he then invites the reader to join with him in this exuberant praise. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And he then moves to giving a testimony about the goodness of God. I don't know about you all, but if I sat by this guy in like a doctor's waiting room, I would be scanning the room to try to find a different seat. Uh, This kind of makes me nervous, this very exuberant kind of praise. I don't know if it's like the Scandinavian in me. I don't know if it's my church background. But this kind of exuberant praise sometimes moves me out of my comfort zone. Maybe you too. I remember Abel, our friend from West Africa who lives in Colorado now, when he started worshiping with us, he was like, y'all don't, y'all don't move around a lot, do you? <laughs> he didn't say, y'all, I think it was a, I can't mimic Abel's accent. He was a little surprised, or a little subdued to what he's used to. 
But the psalmist, he's not going to take no for an answer because he has a story to tell. He has tasted the goodness of the Lord, and he is desperate for you and for me to experience what he has experienced. I said I didn't grow up with a lot of exuberant praise. I also didn't grow up with a lot of testimonies. Again, I don't know if it's like the Scandinavian Lutheran blood in me, but I, I tend to feel more comfortable with stories that begin with, it's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, my hometown, out on the edge of the prairie. Like if you hear, if you start a story like that, I am with you. I am totally with my people at that point. But as I've gotten older, I've really come to appreciate testimonies. At the end of every issue of Christianity Today, it ends with a testimony, and I almost always find myself drawn into these stories, these testimonies, because the headlines grab you. Let me give you an example from some recent issues. Jesus met me on the morning of my funeral. I was dressed for burial when he gave me a mission to proclaim his name. I was a proverbial drug-fueled rock and roller until a chance encounter with mom's old Bible opened my eyes. I wanted to die for Allah, now I live for Jesus. These lines grab our attention because in just a few words, they tell a story that took an unexpected turn. My life was headed one way, I encountered God, and my life took a dramatic turn. In my experience, and I really get this more as I get older, I am so often wrong about making assessments of people. Again and again in my life, I have met people, I've I've encountered them, I've kind of sized them up, come up with a story about who they are in my mind, and later realized I was completely wrong about that person. When you first sit down in the waiting room with the psalmist, you may think, okay, great. You glory in the Lord. You extol the Lord at all times. You praise is always on your lips. You sought the Lord and he answered you. That's probably not hard because everything in your life is going great. It's not the case with me. I'm going through some hard stuff right now. I sought the Lord and I got, I didn't find anything. I got lost. I cried out to the Lord and I got silence. Your bones were protected. My body is a wreck. So if you don't mind, I think I'll pass on the invitation to exuberant praise. It's easy, I think, to get cynical about why people are praising God. It's easy to take the posture of Satan that he takes in the book of Job. He takes a very cynical posture. If you remember, the book opens with a description of this man named Job who's blameless and upright, feared God and shunned evil. He was the greatest of the people of the East. And Satan comes along and says, yeah, yeah, Job's blameless. He's, He's upright. He shuns evil. You know why? Because everything in his life is going great. Because he has this hedge of protection around him. You take that hedge of protection around him, he will curse you. Right? Satan is very cynical. Satan has a very cynical posture. It's easy to extol the goodness of God, to praise the God when life is going great. But what about when the troubles set in? But as you, if you, as you kind of go deeper into Psalm 34, you realize there's more than meets the eye. This psalmist isn't... Pollyannish about life. He's not naive about the troubles of life. If you read the psalm closely, you'll see that this praise emerges from a life that has been punctuated by heartache and challenge and fear. You know, the psalmist says, man, I was once a man of fears. I was the most fearful person. I was a, he describes himself as a poor man. 
And I was familiar with getting kicked to the curb. He knows what it's like to be brokenhearted. He knows what it's like to be crushed in spirit. He's not inviting everyone who has their life going great to join him in praise. If you look at verse 2 in Psalm 34, he's saying, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. That's interesting. Because often when we talk about divine blessing, we're talking about someone who is blessed. We talk about the one who is financially secure, who's respected, who has good health, who is self-sufficient. That is the person who's blessed. That is the person who should praise God. And yet the psalmist makes it clear that those who are to bless are, it doesn't mean you're beyond trouble, right? It doesn't mean that you've escaped trouble. He's rather calling those who are in the midst of trouble to praise God. And I think this should hopefully make our ears perk up a little. Maybe this guy has something to teach us. A couple years ago, I was tending a baccalaureate service that was hosted by the Columbiana Ministerial Association. And the speaker uh, for that year was Monica Shreveflor, who works in children's ministry at the Upper Room Fellowship. And I didn't know Monica, I think, really at all that time. But I was very interested to listen to her faith story, her life story that she was telling. I was, found myself more cued into her story than normal. Right? I would probably be interested if anybody was standing up there sharing their story. She was doing a great job. But I found myself cued in because she wasn't standing, she was sitting in a wheelchair. And her story involved being a teenager and being paralyzed in a tragic car accident. If you radiate joy and gratitude and praise and faith, I will listen to your testimony. I will pay attention to your story. But if you radiate joy and gratitude and praise and faith, as Monica does, after experiencing such profound loss as the ability to walk as a teenager, I'm listening really closely. See, the psalmist is drawing us into his testimony, into his story, because as we look deeper into his story, his testimony, we realize his praise from God is not coming from the absence of trouble, but a life that's been marked by heartache and trouble and fears. And I want to know his secret. I want to know what instructions he has. He's got two imperatives that I think are really important. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe one of my favorite lines in all the Psalter because it combines taste with the goodness of the Lord. The psalmist is speaking my language. If you combine taste and food and experiencing the goodness of God, I'm in. Like, sign me up for that spiritual discipline. Sign me up for that Sunday school lesson. I'm in. It's almost embarrassing to me how quickly my mind goes to food. I was texting with a pastor friend of mine uh, out in Kansas, and he was visiting. He was in Nashville, and I spent a few years in Nashville. And I immediately, without even thinking, I was like, you need to try this and this food in Nashville. Like, not like you can catch a live music show, you can visit the Hermitage, you can go to the Grand Old Opry. It was, you need to try the goodness of Nashville hot chicken. By the way, if you're from around here, don't go try the goodness of Nashville hot chicken. It will not be good. It will not feel good. It will not taste good. But it is good. This summer, our family went on vacation to Quebec, and we had the chance to visit this little island uh, Outside of Quebec City, I actually found out Lucille gave it high recommendation. I was like, we gotta, we got to go here. Right in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. Oh, it's a beautiful little island. You can pick strawberries and blueberries, but that's good, but that's not the best thing. The best thing is this small little chocolate shop that handcrafts chocolates in shop, 
from raw cocoa imported from Belgium. But if you, don't, if you go to the shop, don't waste your money on the chocolate. Waste your money on the chocolate-dipped ice cream cones. Do we have a slide? I don't know if we got that up. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, man. All right, so here's what they do. They take really, really good house homemade ice cream, soft serve, and they then dip it in chocolate, but it's not any chocolate. It is chocolate handcrafted from these high-quality cocoa beans from Belgium, which then it hardens in this perfectly, like just, just the right layer of, of chocolate around the ice cream. And when you bite in it, you will taste that the Lord is good indeed. I, I, I'm not, I tend to, like, I tend to get really excited about food, and my family is, like, often disappointed. We bit into these ice cream cones, and everyone was like, what in the world is happening? This is the best dipped ice cream I've ever had. You can talk to my kids. Somebody out there is thinking, yeah, we, we, like a Dairy Queen. No, no, not at all like Dairy Queen. If you don't believe me, ask my kids. My oldest son described the dipped cone at Dairy Queen as tasting like chalk after eating this one. Once you taste the goodness of that dipped cone on that island, you cannot go back to Dairy Queen. But here's the thing about taste. I can sing the praises of this dipped cone until I'm blue in the face, but the only way you're going to taste its goodness is to taste it yourself. Because that's the thing about taste, right? There's no such thing as secondhand taste. I can try to describe something, but you have to experience it. You have to taste it. The psalmist, he can't stop singing the praises of God because he has tasted the goodness of the Lord, and he's desperate for us to get that taste as well. How do we taste the goodness of the Lord? Well, according to the psalmist, the way he tasted the Lord's goodness was that he sought after the Lord. He opens his testimony by saying, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. The psalmist is saying, look, again, man, I was a fearful person. I was number one in terms of fear. I had all kinds of fears. And here's what I decided to do. I decided to search for God. And when he's saying I searched for God, he's not saying I didn't know if there was a God. I didn't know where he was. What he's saying is I went to God for guidance. I went to God for direction. I began to experiment taking my fears to God. There's a lot of things we can do with our fears. We can worry about our fears. We do that a lot. We can try to alleviate our fears by taking things in our own hand, by trusting our own self-sufficiency. We can kind of bury our fears. We can just try to suppress our fears and hope they go away. And the psalmist is saying, what I did is I took those fears to the Lord. I sought the Lord. I experimented by taking my fears to the Lord, and I found out when I did that, he delivered me from my fears. I tasted the goodness of the Lord. And so what you'll see is throughout the Psalms, there's all these ways that the goodness of the Lord has been tasted, has been experienced. There's somebody who called out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and delivered him from troubles. There's a person who was brokenhearted, who sought the Lord, and found out, man, our Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The picture the psalmist gives us is people that are down and out, who are fearful and troubled and brokenhearted, crushed in spirit, who decide to experiment putting their trust in God. And they find that their needs are satisfied, their hunger is satiated, their strength restored. And he contrasts that though, then with the people who decide to put their trust in themselves. In this verse 10, we have this line that says, The lions may grow weak and hungry, 
but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. It sounds like, what are we, why are we talking about lions? Are we at the zoo, these emaciated lions? But what the psalmist is doing with this metaphor, he's trying to describe the powerful, the lions, right? the people who think they're self-sufficient, the people that our culture tends to uphold as kind of the ideal. And he's saying, no, 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 they go away empty and hungry. The brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit, the poor man, they go to the Lord and they find goodness. It's kind of like we have the Beatitudes, in a sense, in the Psalter. He means, I, I, I knew I couldn't bring my, I couldn't deliver myself. I couldn't secure my own life. I couldn't build a castle with high enough walls and a moat around it to guard it. I knew if I was going to find a refuge and I was going to find a safe place, I wasn't going to be able to rely on myself. I was going to have to rely on God. I was going to have to depend on God. I was going to have to surrender to God. And that's what I did. And I tasted the goodness of the Lord. The journey of faith is a journey of experimentation. It is running into situations where you say, I don't know what to do here. I'm up against a wall. My only recourse is to seek the Lord, to trust God, and to discover that that trust is rewarded, that God can be trusted. We taste the goodness of the Lord when we put our trust in God, even in the midst of trouble. Many of you have lost your spouses. You have experienced what it means to be brokenhearted. You are still brokenhearted by the loss of your spouse. And as I've talked to you, I've seen you lean into the Lord and discover the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. It doesn't mean your broken heart goes away, but you discover, man, God is close to the brokenhearted. Some of you might have lost a job. Some of you might not know what you're going to do, and you cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears you, and a bill got paid, and money showed up. You were cared for. You tasted the Lord's goodness, and it was good. Some of you may have tried to have a baby for years. You were crushed in spirit, and God answered your prayer. You tasted the Lord's goodness, and it was good. Oftentimes, we turn to Jesus not as a first resort, but as a last resort. We have tried everything else. We have tasted from the smorgasbord that the world has to offer, and the world will keep pushing food at you. It'll keep bringing the buffet, the endless buffet, and you will taste, and you will taste, and eventually it'll just be chalky. It doesn't satiate. It leaves you unsatisfied. And at that point, you're at the end of your rope. You don't know what to do. And you start to wonder, I wonder if I turned to Jesus. I wonder if I actually started to take the path that Jesus lays out. I wonder if I actually believed that Jesus knew what he was talking about. If when I came into the words of Jesus, I didn't just quickly put them aside or call them unrealistic, but I actually began to experiment with the words of Jesus, the path of discipleship. Right? Following Jesus is a way of life. You can't experience it from the sidelines. You can't experience it secondhand. You can't experience it just in your head. It's a full, immersive experience. You taste, you hear, you feel. And what happens on the path of discipleship, as you lean into the trust of Jesus, as you take refuge in Jesus, you begin to understand what the psalmist is saying. No one who takes refuge in Jesus will be condemned. Once you taste that, the bread of life, everything else looks like junk food. There's a song by the singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin called Ice Cream, and it opens with this line, Your love is better than ice cream, better than anything else that I've tried. And then the second verse is, Your love is better than chocolate, 
better than anything else that I've tried. If, if Christian and I want to pay each other the ultimate compliment about the goodness of the other's love, we reach for the words of Sarah McLaughlin. Because it's hard for me to pay Christiana a bigger compliment than to say, your love is better than ice cream. And if you know my wife, it's hard for her to pay me a bigger compliment than to say, your love is better than chocolate. Psalmist has tasted the goodness of the Lord. He has put his trust in God in times of trial, and he has found that God's love tastes better than ice cream, that God's love tastes better than chocolate, that God's love tastes better than ice cream dipped in chocolate, that God's love tastes better than anything else he's tried. And he wants you and I to try it. He wants you and I to taste it. He wants you and I to discover it and to join him in singing our praises to God.